couple of months ago, the Summer Olympics were in London. And aside from a goofy opening ceremony, and I, and I do mean a goofy opening ceremony, aside from a goofy opening ceremony, these Olympics were exciting, as most Olympics are. Really exciting. Our U.S. men's basketball team wins the gold medal. Michael Phelps and Missy Franklin take home multiple golds in swimming. And to watch the Olympics is, is exciting. And for me, some of the most exciting events are the, are the gymnastics events. And I think they're so exciting because there's so much action in gymnastics. And there's so much good that can happen. And there's also so much bad that can happen. There's problems. But the gymnastics are action-packed. And I think one of my favorite events in gymnastics is the balance beam. Because in the balance beam, you, you sense all the action and you sense the tension and you sense the stress. But it's an incredible event. The gymnast jumps up or vaults up onto the beam and performs this routine that they've practiced and that they've been working on and they perform this routine. And it's as if they're up there and it's the only thing they have in their life. Everything about what they're doing, everything about who they are is, is focused on that beam. And what I really like about the balance beam is that you can see the gymnast's face. You can sense what they're experiencing. You can sense what they're going through when they're up on the beam. And for the most part, when they're up on that beam and when they're performing that routine, you can see that they're in the zone, that they love what they're doing, that everything about their life has come to this point on the beam performing this routine. And it's as if they're, they're truly living. They're doing what they were designed to do. And on their face, you can see the joy and the happiness and the purpose and the meaning because they're up on the beam doing what they were made to do. But do you know what it takes to be up on the beam? Have you ever thought about what it takes of the gymnast to be up on the beam? It takes extreme focus. It takes an undivided focus where nothing else matters. Everything is about them being up on the beam. Everything about their life is put into this point and into this routine. They have undivided focus. It's what scripture calls an undivided heart. The gymnast has an undivided heart. And it's not only Olympic gymnasts. It's you. It's me. It's a great illustration for us as we live our lives as Christians, as we live our lives of followers of Jesus. Now, I know you're all sitting there thinking, is he really going to jump up on that beam? <laughs> In one of the services, somebody asked if I had special shoes on. I don't. These are regular shoes. And I am going to jump on the beam because in our lives as Christians, we are called to live up on the beam. Yep. And we are called to answer the call that God has for our lives. And when we're up here, when we're living on the beam, this is what we are made to do. This is the only way in which we truly live. Following God, answering his call, being obedient to what he has for us. That's what it means to live up on the beam. And when you and when me, when we as Christians live here up on this beam, we are experiencing true life. Yeah. 
the life that God meant for us. And on our faces is the joy, is the happiness, is the meaning, is the purpose. But you can only have the joy, the happiness, the meaning, and the purpose if you are living up on the beam. And the only way you can stay up on the beam is if you have an undivided heart. Now, it's hard to have an undivided heart, isn't it? Some of us, it's really easy to have a divided heart. Sometimes we don't really necessarily like being up on the beam. It's a lot easier to sit on the beam and to sit here and do our own thing, make our own decisions, do the things that we want to do. And so we don't follow God. We don't obey the things that God asks us to do because we want to make our own choices. So we just kind of sit on the beam. And some of us don't even sit on the beam. Some of us kind of live life scared. We're scared about what God's called us to do. So instead of sitting on the beam, we lay on this beam. And man, we hold on and hug for dear life. I don't want to let go. No, God, don't call me to do that. I can't do it. So we hold on tight. I'm not going to step out of my comfort zone. It's too comfortable laying on the beam. It's really not. It's very uncomfortable. But God doesn't want us sitting on the beam. He doesn't want us laying on the beam. He wants us up on the beam. Truly living our lives for him. But I am telling you, and I promise you, the only way you can be up on this beam is if you have an undivided heart. So what does an undivided heart look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. So let's look at Psalm 86. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 86. It's found on page 421 in the Bible that the church provides. Psalm 86, page 421. And this Psalm 86 is a Psalm of David. That means that David has written this Psalm. And in this Psalm, David cries out to God. David's alone. He feels under attack. He feels overwhelmed. His enemies have lined up against him. So David cries out to God for help. Now it's interesting to note that David doesn't cry out just for salvation or rescue. David asks something more than that. David cries out for relationship with God. You would think that if David's under attack, you'd think that if his enemies had surrounded him, his primary cry would be for salvation, that his primary cry would be for rescue. But here it's not. His primary cry, the thing that he's asking most of God, is for right relationship with God. So beginning in verse 11, David has three specific prayers that he lifts up to God. There are three specific things that David asks of God. And as you will see, the things that he asks God are things that we ask God every week. These verses, verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 86, are our benediction. And not only is David asking these things of God, but you and me, we are asking these things of God every week for the rest of the year. Let's read together, beginning in verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name 
forever. Now remember, David's under attack. His enemies have surrounded him. They're lined up against him. And his first concern is not salvation or rescue. His first concern is right relationship with God. It's as if David understands. It's as if David knows that if his relationship with God is right, everything else will be right. That if his relationship with God is good, everything else, no matter what he's facing, will ultimately turn out good. Now, there's three requests here. And I want you to notice that all three of the requests, you're going to see that all three of the requests are very similar, but there's nuance to the request. There's nuance to each of them. And in each of these requests, in each of these three requests, in essence, what David is asking for is an undivided heart. David wants a being. He wants his being to be totally and utterly and completely devoted to God and to following God's call on his life. Now let's look at the first one, the first request specifically. Look what David prays. David prays, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. It's interesting, by asking this, David is admitting that he doesn't necessarily understand God's way, or God's way isn't necessarily obvious to him. Even King David, king of Israel, goes to God and asks him, he says, Lord, teach me your way. I want to know your way. And now it's important for us to note that there are only two ways. There are only two ways. There is God's way, and there is the way of the wicked. Look at how the writer of Proverbs puts it in Proverbs chapter 4. Look at these two ways. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the second way, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. You see, there are only two ways, and many times, if you're like me, you like to kind of think that there's a third way. You like to think there's God's way, there's the way of the wicked, and then there's my way. And it's probably, it's probably not completely God's way, but it, it's, a, it's an okay way. And that's not the case. There are not three ways. There are only two ways. There's, there's God's way, and there's the way of the wicked. Only two ways. And Jesus himself is very clear on this. Turn to Matthew 19. Keep your finger in Psalm 86, but turn to Matthew 19. It's on 696. And look at how Jesus addresses these two ways. This is the exchange between Jesus and a, and a rich young man. And we're going to start in verse 16. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired? Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, in essence, Jesus is saying to this young man, It's either me or your money. See, there's only two paths. 
There's God's way, and there's the way of the wicked or the way of the world. And as the rich man walks away, you can almost hear him thinking to himself, I just wish there were a third way. I just wish I could have my own way and I could keep the things that I have and still follow Christ. But Jesus says, hey, there's two ways. There's my way, and there's the way of the wicked and the way of the world. Later in this story, Peter gets really nervous, and he asks, what about us, Lord? We left everything to follow you. And Jesus essentially says, because you followed God's way, you and everyone else who left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. You see, not only are there only two ways, God's way is vastly different than the way of the wicked or the way of the world. You see, God's way is a way of service and of sacrifice and complete in utter obedience and devotion to him with nothing held back. God asks for everything. And that is the way of God. And it is completely different than the way of the world. Now, I'd like to tell you that intuitively we all kind of know God's way, that we all kind of know which way he wants us to go, but that's not the case. Left to our own devices, we will always pick the way of the world or the way of the wicked or our own way. So in essence, in order to know what God has, in order to know what God's way is, in order to know what God's call on your life is, you need to be in this book. I need to be in this book because unless we're in this book, you do not know God's way. And you will pick the way of the world. So together, we need to study this book. We need to know what it says and we need to know God's way. There are only two ways. And God's way is vastly different. Now back to Psalm 86. Back to Psalm 86. That's right, my man. David prays, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Not only does David want to know God's way, David makes a commitment. He makes a promise. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. David just does not want to know God's way for the sake of knowing God's way. He just doesn't want to know what God thinks. He wants to know God's way so that he can walk in his truth. He wants to know God's way so he can be obedient. He wants to know God's way so he will do what God wants him to do. So David says, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. And you know, if you're going to be up on the balance beam, if you're going to be living life to the full, full of joy, full of happiness, full of purpose, full of meaning, to have an undivided heart, the first request that we have to make is teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. There are no part-time Olympic gymnasts. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. David has a second request, and it's found in the second half of verse 11. Look what it says. It says, give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. Now, I don't want to confuse you with the second request. You see, all of Psalm 86 is about David asking God for an undivided heart. And each of these two verses and the three requests that are within the two verses are all about David asking God for an undivided heart. 
But in this second request, David does something very specific, and he asks for an undivided heart. He asks for a unified heart for a purpose. And the purpose is so that he may fear God's name. So David understands that an undivided heart brings about the fear of God's name. Now, I know we're not very comfortable with this idea of fearing God's name. We're much more comfortable with the idea of loving God and having a loving God. But David specifically asks that he would fear God's name. And there are two notions behind what he's asking for. The first notion that David wants to understand and he wants to know deep down in his being in this idea of fear is that God is the judge. God is the evaluator. God determines what is right or wrong. God determines what is good or bad. Not you, not me. It's God. God is judge. That's the first notion. The second notion that this idea or this concept of fear conveys is the idea of awe, of respect, of reverence. David says, Lord, I want to fear your name. I want to understand that you are the judge, that you determine what's right or wrong, and I want to sit in front of you, in awe, in reverence, and in fear. I want to respect who you are because you are God. You are God alone. I am not God. You have created everything that I see. You have created the star. You have created the suns. You have created the moon. You've created this earth. And not only have you created those things, you've created me. And not only are you creator, you're a sustainer. Without you, there would be nothing. Without you, everything would implode upon itself. So you have created and you have sustained, and therefore I want to sit in awe and in reverence and in respect of who you are. Why does David ask for this? Why is this the case? Because David understands that either he will fear God or he will try to please men. An undivided heart means that David will fear God, that he will have awe and reverence and respect for God. And David recognizes that it's always better to please God than to please men. You see, Paul understands this concept. In the book of Galatians, Paul writes this letter to the people in the church of Galatia, and there's a dispute that's happening. And there's a group of people called Judaizers. And these Judaizers have come to the people of Galatia with a false doctrine. And they've told the people of Galatia that salvation consists of more than just Jesus. They've said that in order to be a Christian, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, in order to be a Christian, the Judaizers said that you had to keep Old Testament rites. Primarily the rite of circumcision. That you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul comes along and he says, no, 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 that's not the case. That's a false gospel. The true gospel is Jesus and Jesus alone. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then you have salvation. There's nothing else needed. But in the midst of this dispute, look what Paul writes in Galatians 1 verse 10. Look what he says. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In the midst of the dispute with the Galatians, Paul asks, am I trying to please people or am I trying to please God? 
And Paul recognizes that it's essential in order to be a servant of Jesus Christ, you have to try and focus on pleasing God, not on pleasing people. And think for a minute with me how hard this had to be for Paul. These people he's talking about are friends. They're people that he's likely met, spent time with, maybe even people he introduced Christ to. And these people became Christians because of what he had said to them. And now these people seem to be turning on Paul. But more than that, Paul sees them turning on God. And Paul says, am I going to please God or am I going to please man? And we know what this is like, don't we? Am I going to please God or am I going to please man? Maybe you're in a classroom and a teacher or a professor walks in and the teacher and professor introduces him or herself and says, let's take some time and introduce ourselves to each other and says, hey, I'm interested. Are any of you Christians? Are any of you followers of Jesus? Do you really believe that stuff in the Bible? What are you going to say? Are you going to please God? Or are you going to please men? Or let's say you're at a party and a bunch of people are around and you're kind of hanging out, you're talking, you're having a good time, and somebody comes into the group and says, Hey, don't you go to church? Don't you go to that Calvary church? You're one of those Jesus people, aren't you? What are you going to say? Are you going to please God? Or are you going to please man? I mean, it's not only for people in high school or college, is it? You're at a party and people, grown-ups, are talking about life and things. And the discussion turns to faith and you have this prompting that says, you know what, tell them about Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. What are you going to say? Are you going to please God? Or are you going to please men? See, it's all over for us, isn't it? It's at parties. It's in the workplace. It's with our co-workers. It's the decisions we make. It's the things we say. It's the things we do. And our choice is clear. Are you going to please God? Or are you going to please men? And David says, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name so that when the choice comes, I'm going to choose God to please you. So David prays, Teach me, O Lord, Teach me your way and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And then the third request, David prays. The last description of the undivided heart is found in the third part of David's prayer. It's verse 12. Look at what David prays. He says, I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. I will praise you, O Lord, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Here David is crying out in worship. 
He is proclaiming that his undivided heart is going to glorify the name of God forever. Other translations say, I will give you thanks, O Lord my God, with all of my heart. David is crying out to God in worship. He understands who God is. He understands what God has done. He understands what God is going to do. No matter what the circumstances is are, even though his enemies are surrounding him, he feels alone. He feels overwhelmed. He cries out in worship and he says, I will give thanks to you, O God, with all of my heart. I will praise your name forever. David knows exactly who God is, and he cries out in worship. Turn to Matthew 26, page 703. In Matthew 26, we see a story of a woman who completely understands this concept of worship. Jesus, in this story, is at the home of Simon the leper. And a woman comes up to him with an alabaster jar full of perfume, full of expensive perfume, perfume that costs more than a year's worth of wages that's in this jar. And the woman takes the jar and breaks the jar and pours the perfume over Jesus' head. A year's worth of salary poured over Jesus' head. And some of us are sitting here thinking, really? And especially those of you who are Dutch (laughs) are thinking, really? A whole year's salary? A whole year's salary value of perfume just poured over his head? That's what she does? Well, that's what some of the disciples thought as well. Look at what they said in verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. It's a pretty strong word, indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price in the money given to the poor. Look at Jesus' response. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, the undivided heart doesn't only worship. The undivided heart goes all out in worship. This woman knew exactly what it meant to worship God. This woman knew exactly what it meant to go all out in worship. By pouring the expensive perfume over Jesus' head, she is crying out along with David, I will praise you. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. This woman expresses herself in the deepest, most expressive way possible. She gives almost everything to Jesus. She worships him expressly and explicitly. She gives of herself to him because she knows what he's done. She knows what he's doing and she knows what he is going to do. She knows what Jesus is going to do. So she worships expressively. An undivided heart worships expressively. 
to Jesus. Now, I don't know what expressively looks like for each one of us. All of us worship differently. All of us express ourselves in different ways, and that's okay. But what I do know is that if Jesus were right here, I think we would worship a lot different. If Jesus were right here, I think our worship would be a lot more expressive. And you know what? Jesus is right here. He is right here this morning, and he is right here every time we meet together. So David proclaims, Lord, I will praise you with all of my heart. I will glorify your name forever. You see, the undivided heart seeks God's way to walk in his truth. The undivided heart is unified so that it may fear God's name, so it chooses to please God over man. And the undivided heart worships and worships expressively because of who God is. A number of weeks ago, I was in Europe. I had the opportunity to go to visit the opening of a Bible training center that Calvary has supported. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to meet some incredible people. This Bible training center takes people who are Christians from a Muslim background brings them to the training center and teaches them what it means to be like Christ. It teaches them Christ-likeness. And then these individuals go back into their country of origin, Muslim countries, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to encourage other Christians, and to build up churches. And while I was there, I got to spend some extended time with a couple by the name of Ruth and Boaz. Now, Ruth and Boaz aren't their real names, obviously. But they take on these names, even while they were at this Bible training center, because these people have death warrants out on their lives. And they go back into their Muslim country of origin because they love Jesus and because they want to tell their friends and their family about this Jesus they know. And I sat and I listened to Ruth tell her story of how a couple of months ago she goes into this North African country and she spends time meeting with various Christians and the police end up identifying her and following her and eventually arrest her and they ask her if she's a Christian. She said, yeah, I am a Christian. And they put her in jail. And now she got out. But I sat there and I thought to myself, wow. And while I was studying this past week, I thought to myself and I thought about Ruth. And I thought about a woman who, who knows God's way, who is obedient to what God has asked her to do, who has an undivided heart and fears God and she is all about pleasing God and she is not so concerned about pleasing men. And worship? This woman worships excessively and extravagantly. Ruth has an undivided heart. And you know what? She's not sad. 
She's not disappointed. She's not disillusioned. She's not depressed. Why? Because Ruth and Boaz are up on the beam. They are living the life that God has called them to. They are living in obedience. And by doing so, they are experiencing true life. They are not lying down. They are not hugging the beam. They are up living. And they are experiencing joy and happiness. She's telling me about herself being in prison, and she's got a smile on her face. Why? Because she has meaning and she has purpose because she is following God's call. And you know what? It's not only for people in North Africa or the Middle East or in Europe. It's for you and it's for me. This is what God has called us to. God has called us to be living our lives up on the beam obeying what he has called you to do, whatever it is. And you know what? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what he's called you to do. Maybe he's called you to sell your house and downsize and move to a different neighborhood. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's called you to take your kids out of Christian schools and put them into public schools or out of public schools and put them into Christian schools. Maybe. Maybe he's called you to go into your workplace and talk more about Jesus. Maybe. Maybe he's called you to be in your school and be a light to a kid there that needs it. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he's called you to sell everything, pick up, and move to North Africa. Maybe. Maybe he's called you to stay in your own neighborhood and just be more neighborly to the people next to you. Maybe. But you know what I do know? I know that if you obey if you do what he is calling you to do, you will live up here on this beam and you will experience true life. Life that is full and meaningful and has purpose and joy and happiness. Why? Because you're on the beam. But every one of us have to remember that the only way you can be up on this beam and stay here is if you have an undivided heart. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for who you are. You are God and you are God alone. And we thank you for the love that you have shown to each one of us. David prays a prayer, Lord. He requests, he asks you to give him an undivided heart because he knows that he can't do it on his own. So Lord, I ask this morning, I ask that you would give me an undivided heart. And for my friends here this morning, Lord, I ask that you'd give each one of them an undivided heart. Lord, give us all undivided hearts so we can live up on the beam. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.